Um, a few days ago, if y'all remember when it was just like super hot, I mean, it was just hovering 90 plus degree day in, day out. And even at night, it just, it was just hot all the time. And, and I came out at the end of one of those days, at the end of the work day, I came out of the office here and I was headed to my vehicle, like I always do. And I opened the door and I got in and then I noticed that my rear view mirror had become, you know, disattached from the windshield. It had gotten so hot, you know, the glue gave way. And so my rear view mirror is just dangling by a cord uh, from the windshield. And I was like, well, this is great, but you know, I had things to do and places to be. So I, I had to disconnect, you know, the computer cable that plugs into the back of the rear view mirror because now we just don't have rear view, rear, rear view mirrors. We have rear view mirrors that are also many computers. And so I had to disconnect the computer cable from the back of the rear view mirror. And, and when I did that, I got a little alert down here on, on my dash that said all of my, you know, sensors on the car had been disconnected. So all, all the little sensors that lets me know when I'm getting too close to something or someone or when I'm drifting out of my lane, you know, the seat will vibrate or a little bitty, you know, alarm will go off. All of that got disengaged when I took that cable out of the rear view mirror because I guess the whole thing's connected. So like I said, though, I've got places to be and I've got things to do. So, you know, a day or two went by and I didn't have time to fix it. So I'm driving around without a rear view mirror or without any protection sensors on my vehicle. And everybody knows how close attention I pay to all the details in my life. And so this wasn't dangerous at all. Uh, so I'm driving one day down 75 and without, you know, the rear view and without the protection of my sensors, which I didn't really realize how much I depended on. Uh, but I'm driving down 75. 75 at a, at, a, at a good amount of speed, and if you're law enforcement, within the 10. And, and, and so, if that's a thing, I, I'm driving down the interstate within the 10, and, and I, I need to switch lanes because the inevitable has happened because it always happens on 75. You get in a lane and someone from Ohio decides to go 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. And so, you know, you got somebody from Ohio in front of you and you're like, for the love of goodness. Uh, and so I, I need to switch lanes. And so I, I, I look to my left side view mirror and my right side view mirror. I don't have a rear view mirror and, and I'm looking as good as I can and there's no one there. And then I put on my signal and I start just drifting out of my lane into the left lane to which I was greeted with really aggressive horn honking. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's just not like a beep, beep. It was like, and I'm like, and then I looked and there's a car that just appeared. Uh, there, there was a car that just came out of nowhere. And, and so I jerked back and, and, and I'm driving down, you know how your heart's just beating. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that was really close. Cause I almost ran those people into the concrete barrier and I almost collided with them. And I thank God I jerked back in time. And, and I realized I had almost hurt someone and it was the last thing that I wanted to do. I realized that I almost hurt myself and it was the last thing that I wanted to do. I almost drifted into someone on I-75 at about 80 miles per hour. And if, if it had gone bad, if there had been a collision, I don't know how bad it could have been. And so the moral of the story, it's kind of a public service announcement is, blind spots are dangerous. Blind spots are dangerous. So if your rearview mirror is disattached or your sensors are down, get them fixed immediately because it could be very, very dangerous. And beyond that, at the right place, at the right time, blind spots can be deadly. They could be deadly. And that really has to do with what we're talking about today because we're in part three of our series and it's called The Drift. 
And when we're talking about the drift, we're talking about something that's imperceptible and it's unavoidable. It's gonna happen to all of us sooner or later in some significant area of our life, but we're talking about as it relates to our faith. And if you haven't been here, uh, here, here's just a big lanky definition uh, of the drift. The drift is the result of a gravitational pull that, that causes an unintentional move away from values, perspective, and beliefs that result in unintended changes which negatively impacts the quality and the direction of one's life. Uh, that's basically the first two weeks in one kind of big lanky definition. That, that's, that's the drift when we're talking about. It's an unintentional move. And it leads to unintentional change and unintended consequences. And it happens when we get untethered away from what is right and what is good and what is best. And that happens when we get distracted from what's most important or we begin to neglect what is most important or we begin to live and behave as though less important things are the most important things. And when, when that happens, we kind of just get, we get untethered from what's right and what's good and what's best. And that gives us over to the current. That puts us the, at the mercy of the current. Uh, we have no anchoring now. We're, we're no longer tethered to something that's solid and something that we can center our life around. Now, now we're at the mercy of the current and, and the current within us and the current around us, it rarely takes us in a good direction, which is why we're talking about this. And when we begin to drift, it's, it's a predictable progression. And, and we've talked about this every week and I, I wanna keep coming back to it for just a moment because it, it's the predictable progression of drift every single time. This is what happens. We drift away from what's right, what's good and what's best. We end up turning away from the living God because that's just the nature of how it works. And as we turn away from the living God, as we drift away, we become deceived. Uh, it's hard for us to, to make sound decisions. It's hard for us to know up from down and left from right. It's just very difficult. We just, we get all cloudy about where we think we are and where we think we're going and, and we just get deceived. And then we turn to idols. Now we don't have little wooden statues that we carry around with us, maybe like people, you know, in the days when the Bible, you know, was written uh, or the scripture was recording, you know, that period in history. Um, but yet we turn to things which we expect to give us life, but they take life from us. We, we turn to things expecting they're gonna give us joy and peace, but they take joy and peace from us. And this happens every single time we drift. We drift away, we turn away, we become deceived, and we turn to idols. And as this happens, when this happens, we almost never see it happening when it's happening. We rarely, if ever, see this happen when it's actually happening. Well, we just can't see it. We, we don't know that we are in the, in the throes of the drift because we're now in a current and, and we don't even realize that we're in a current and we're headed away from the things that we really know we need to be anchored to. So. Drifting is not something that expands our perspective. It's actually something that narrows it and limits our perspective. And as we're gonna to discover today, the further we drift, the longer we drift, the bigger our blind spots become. If it's true that when you're drifting away and turning away and becoming deceived and turning to things expecting one thing but getting another, if it's true that you can't see it when it's happening, then the longer you drift and the further you drift, the bigger your blind spots, the bigger my blind spots are gonna become. And blind spots are dangerous. And blind spots at the right moment, at the right time, blind spots can become deadly. 
And so when we're drifting, we rarely are able to see what we need to see because it's hidden. It's a blind spot. It's that car on 75. It was there the whole time and I just could not see it. I wanted to see it, I looked for it, but I could not see it. It was a blind spot. And whenever you have a blind spot, there are hidden dangers that may be present that you don't even know are there. That's why blind spots are dangerous. That's why blind spots are deadly because you become at risk, I become at risk, we become at risk of hidden dangers. Things that you may be looking for, but you can't even see it. Things that you are aware exist, but you may not even be able to see it. And so this is a bit concerning that you have such a blind spot that danger is lurking in the places where you can't see. Now, this happened to a group of Christians. This happened to a lot of Christians, but it happened to a group of Christians near the end of the first century. Um, This group of Christians, they lived in a storied city, a a city with a lot of history, uh, about 50 miles uh, west of Ephesus, uh, located in what we would call modern day Western Turkey. And it was a city that was famous throughout the ancient world for for centuries, both because of its splendor, uh, but also mainly because of its location. The city that we're gonna talk about and the people who live there, it was an acropolis, uh, which means the city was literally built on top of a mountain. And and the fact that it was built on top of a mountain uh, resulted in steep cliffs on three sides of the city. So there were all these unscalable cliffs, which, which made you know, the city basically impregnable. Uh, it, it was just the perfect place to defend. There was only really one, one way into the city that you could conquer the city, and, and that's where you know, most of the focus went because you had these unscalable walls. And so you know, everybody just felt safe in the city. And the city was the ancient city of Sardis. Um, it, it was located among five major trade routes. So there was a lot of resources. The economy was strong. There was always just the hustle and bustle of the city. Uh, it, it was just a really great place to live because there was so much wealth. There was so much resources. There was so much opportunity. And, and so when you live in a place that, that feels so safe in the ancient world, because not, not very many places were completely safe, but you live in a place where you feel completely safe and you have resources and you have means uh, you kind of just live comfortably. You, you don't live with a lot of worry and you don't live you know, with a lot of angst and that's just not kind of how you do it because you've got means, you feel safe and, and you just live life. And that's kind of how things were in Sardis. But somewhere around AD 17, there was a major earthquake and it, it leveled the city. Tiberius was the emperor at that time and he exempted the city uh, from taxes for five years. Uh, in order that they may rebuild. And they did rebuild, but they were just a shadow of their former selves. They never got to the glory that they had, you know, for about four or 500 years leading up to the earthquake in AD 17. Uh, There was a group of Christians living in this city in the first century that we don't know for sure, but we think John, uh, the apostle, probably had a hand in helping start that particular church. And, And the one thing that we do know, we don't really know who started it. We think John did, but here's what we do know. That which had started well, that which had started strong with focus and with passion and with faith and with commitment, in just a few decades of time began to experience drift. And they didn't know it. They didn't see it. It was a blind spot for them. 
And so John, uh, who is at the end of the first century, probably somewhere around 90 or so AD, he's, he's kind of a, a prisoner of Rome. He's on the island of Patmos and, and he writes the final book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation. And in the book of the Revelation, he, he writes seven little letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And one of those churches to which he writes a letter to is the church in the city of Sardis. Uh, and when he writes to the church, I don't want you to think as, as, it, as an institution. I want you to think of it as individuals because the church is a corporate body of believers, a corporate body of people who believe that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. But the church is made up specifically of individuals who believe that Jesus died for our sin, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead. So he's writing to the church, but sometimes that can feel so impersonal. Sometimes that can feel so corporate. Uh, I, I want you to know and think about it in these terms. John wrote a letter on behalf of Jesus to the individuals, people like you, people like me, who said, hey, we're a part of this church at Sardis. We are followers of Jesus. Uh, we are people of faith. And he wrote it to people with first names and last names and people who had a past and people who had stuff going on in the present and people who had dreams and aspirations for the future, people just like you. And so John writes this letter and, and he, he begins with just, you know, just, he gets right to the punch. And this is what he says after just giving them, you know, kind of a generic greeting. He says, on behalf of Jesus, Jesus says to all you Christians in Sardis, I know all the things you do. And it's like words like that, at least in my experience in church growing up, words like this were almost always used to invoke fear, to invoke dread or guilt. Like, I know all the things you do. <laughs> I have you, my pretty. You know, it's like, I know all the things you do. It's like, oh God. Oh Lord, no, I don't even wanna think about that. I, 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 I can't even go there. I know all the things you do, and especially in youth ministry, that's a tactic. I know all the things you do. Mama doesn't know, daddy doesn't know, brother doesn't know, sister doesn't know, but Jesus says, I know. It's like, oh my goodness. And, and it's kind of all about, hey, Jesus says he knows everything you do, so you better, you just better, you just better, you better get it in line. You better kind of be a little bit fearful, a little bit dreadful, and like, oh my gosh, and you know, just feel terrible about yourself, and you know, all those things. And that's kind of the way that most of the time a verse like this is presented to us. But there is another side. There is another way to think about this, and I think this is what he is meaning because it's true. It's true that he knows all the things that we're doing. He knows all the things that we've done. But once upon a time, God, your heavenly father, our savior, once upon a time, before there was anyone, he knew what everyone was going to do. Once upon a time, before there was anyone, he knew what every one of us would eventually, ultimately, when we got our time and speck in history, he knew what we would do. He says, I know that you, I know all that you do, but once upon a time, I knew everything that you would do. And you know what? I love you anyway. I loved you all the way back there. And I decided all the way back there before you were even alive and before you were even the thought of a mom or a dad, or even before you occupied a speck in the universe in time and space, before that ever happened, I knew all that you would do. And I loved you then, and I decided then that I was gonna send my son to die for you to prove that love for you. And so what, what 
on one side of the coin makes us fear all kind of freaked out and just full of dread and fear and oh my goodness, on the other side of the coin, when we think about it, it brings such encouragement and it brings such peace and it brings like, okay, the one who knows all that I do, the one who once upon a time knew everything that I would eventually do, who loved me then and who decided to give his life for me then so that he could redeem me from my sin, he's telling me that he knows. And so all of a sudden I can know that the one who knows me loves me. And there's comfort in that. There's comfort in being known and there's comfort in the one that knows us loving us. There's not much comfort, there's not much encouragement when someone who doesn't really know us loves us because they may not love the true us. They may not love all the wrinkles and all the, all the dark spots and all the shadows and all the mishaps and all the missteps. But when someone knows you and they love you anyway, there's something powerful about that. There's something encouraging about that. And, and I think that's where Jesus starts the letter off. Hey, I know all that you do. And I want you to be reminded that I love you anyway. And I prove that I love you anyway. So, so don't be afraid of what I'm about to say. You know, don't, don't cower down, don't recoil, don't pull back. I want, you to, I want you to lean in and I want you to listen. I know all that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. I know your reputation. Men and women of Sardis, teenagers, students of Sardis. I know your reputation, you've got a reputation. I mean, people, people are talking about you. People have got opinions about you. And this was John's way of communicating on behalf of the Lord that, hey, when people looked at those people in Sardis, they would think to themselves, those people have it all together. Those people have got all the boxes checked. And from one perspective, it seemed like those, those folks in Sardis, they had all their I's dotted and all their T's crossed. I mean, if you got on Facebook and checked out the Christians living in Sardis, if you looked at their account, you'd find all kinds of inspirational quotes just one right after the other. And everybody just liking it and oh, that's so good, that's so deep. Oh, thank you, needed that today. You know, all that, you'd find one filtered picture after another, portraying life lived to the fullest, a person who could not be happier. You would see posts and you would find a person who would quote Bible verses from time to time. When people looked at those people in Sardis, they would think, man, they're spiritual. They're spiritual people. Their theology, it's biblical. Their politics, it's conservative. These people knew the Bible. They loved the church. And, and from everybody else's perspective, they were just seemingly good at being good. They were just good at being good. And when it came to public image, when it came to public persona, when it came you know, to managing what people thought of them and how people saw them, when it came to brand management, when it came to projecting themselves, out to people on the outside looking in at them. I mean, they had manufactured quite a reputation, quite a brand, and they had protected it because Jesus says, I know you have a reputation. You have a reputation far and wide. And maybe the people at Sardis were good like some of us are good at, you know, like virtue signaling, you know, uh, probably not you, probably not Williamsburg, Millsboro or Somerset, you know, it's, it's, it's another church, but you know, it's other people. It's virtue signaling, you know, people just get online and they go real public and they take a real particular position on a particular issue for the purpose of applause from a very particular audience 
so that they'll you know, write something, post something, say something, go on the record about something as though anybody gives a flying rip about your position as though it's a matter of public record, but you know, it's like, I gotta make a statement, I gotta make a, no, you don't. You don't need to make a statement. Nobody knows your name. Uh, they, you're friends with them, but they don't know you. They're not coming to your funeral, but I need to make a statement. And you make a statement, and so, oh man, that's great, that's great, that's super, man, I tell you, they're on the right side of this. And maybe they were good at that. And so a lot of people, when they looked at them and thought about them, they're like, man, I mean, they got it together. They're all buttoned up. The boxes are checked. These people, these sardines, sardies, whatever they are, sardinians, whatever they were, well, they were the salt of the earth. A lot of the world, bro, I'll tell you that. I'm telling you, there's wonderful people. They're wonderful, they're wonderful people. I've heard nothing but good. Nothing but me too. Isn't she amazing? She's an amazing woman. Oh, God. I'll tell you, every woman ought to be amazing like her. What a, what a great guy. Isn't he a great guy? Do you know him? Great guy, isn't he? Oh, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. And that's, that's what people talked about the people living in Sardis. It's like, oh yeah, these people are great. I mean, I'm telling you. Uh, and, and then those who are a little bit like me and a little bit like some of you whose lives are a little bit more disheveled and a little bit more disorganized and, and it's not so pretty. It's matter of fact, quite a bit messy. When people like us would look at the people in Sardis, we would think, man, I should be more like them. I need to be more like these people. I mean, they've, they've got it going on. I'm telling you, there's salt and light. They don't go to certain places. They don't use certain words. They don't drink certain things or eat certain things. They don't wear certain things. They refuse to listen to certain types of music. And I'm telling you, we all just need to kind of be more like them. That was their reputation. That's how people thought of them. They were all-stars, top shelf, full of life. They'll find some batteries and hook me up. All right, is that good? Ah, I can preach it now. Ah, come on, somebody. Okay, anyway, I just have to do it every time it gets in my hand. It's like something runs through me. You better get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, anyway, okay. We gotta stop. Quit laughing. You're, you're, you're agging this on and the staff are cringing. And so anyway, that's how people thought of them. Uh, people are full of life. The, the, this is the best. I mean, nobody can be, you know, this is who we need to be. But then John says something which just had to take everybody by surprise. He says to them, he says, but you are dead. You are dead. Now, everybody thinks you're alive but you're dead. Everybody thinks you got it all together, but you don't. Thank you, brother. I can't hold this mic. I'll go crazy. You're a scholar and a gentleman. Still no good. Okay, I'll just preach with this. You got me now. You got me now. Thank the Lord. All right. 
we got the best production team anywhere. Uh, they'll do whatever they have to do, even when they don't want to do it. Uh, Zach would never want to come out here and change my batteries in the midst of everything. <laughs> but thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. He says, listen, you think you're alive, but you're dead. Everybody thinks you're alive, but you're dead. Everybody thinks you got it all buttoned up, but you're kind of, you're kind of unbuttoned and unzipped. I mean, you're not, you, it's, it's not what you think it is. How things appeared were really not a reflection of reality. How things appeared was just a false reality. It was like a false image. It was a facade. It was, it was a veneer. It was a mask. It was a, it was a false exterior. It was just, at the end of the day, it was just play acting. These Christians, somewhere along the way, it, it started strong, it started good, but they drifted away from genuine faith to kind of just playing a role. They're kind of just going through the motions. And somewhere along the way, it seems as though they confused their habits for having a heart about the things that they had habits with. You know, that they just, they went through the motions and all of a sudden they just assumed it meant something. That their habits were indicative of having a heart for God or for the things of God. Uh, maybe they confused good beliefs because there's a lot of Christians who do this. Confuse good beliefs with virtue and goodness. You, you, just as long as you have the right set of beliefs and you can check these boxes and say yes to this and yes to that and yes to this and yes to that and, and, and I don't believe that, I don't believe that, then, then in some way that's just, that's such a good virtue and it's just all good and it just kind of just covers you completely. Or, or some Christians, they confuse good behavior with genuine faith and spirituality. People who are good at being good just seem to have great faith and people who are good at being good just seem to be spiritual more so than people who are not so good at being good. And it's also confusing and it's also easy to be confused. These folks had gotten to a place where they couldn't see what they needed to see about themselves. They had a blind spot. And here's the thing, this is just my opinion. They couldn't see what was true about themselves because they couldn't see beyond what they wanted to be true about themselves. They couldn't truly see what was true about themselves because they could only see what they wanted to be true about themselves. They couldn't get past that. And they wanted these, these things to be so true about them they just stop there and they begin to believe that those things were true. I mean, who wouldn't want those things to be true? Who wouldn't want to be called salt of the earth and a lot of the world? And who wouldn't want people to think we got all of our I's dotted and all of our T's crossed? And who wouldn't want to be thought of as top shelf and just, you know, a good guy or an amazing woman? I mean, who wouldn't want to be, you know, known for that? Of course, any of us would. But they wanted it so much. They wanted that to be true so much. They began to believe it was true, even though it wasn't true. And so they begin to manufacture this public image. They begin to manufacture this brand. They begin to manufacture this public persona to the point that they began to believe it was real. Other people believed it was real. And as other people believed it was real, they began to believe that it was real and true about themselves as well. Now this can happen to anybody. This can happen to you, this can happen to me. It can happen to the Christians living in Sardis. It happened to some of their neighbors living in Laodicea. Later on in this chapter, John's gonna write a little paragraph to them as well. And, and listen to this. The, the Sardis folks, he says, you think you're alive. People think you're alive, but you're dead. You think you got all together. People think you got all together, but you really don't. Same thing was going on in Laodicea with a group of Christians there. And, and there Jesus said to them, you say, you say, your self-assessment is, your self-awareness, this is the extent of it. I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. 
I'm comfortable. I'm safe. I'm insulated against risk. And and I can afford to take certain risk, which is kind of fun, but at the end of the day, I know I'm kind of gonna be okay. So I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I I don't really need a thing. I'm, I'm kind of set, I'm kind of safe. But Jesus says, you do not realize, you can't see it. It's a blind spot. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Say what? How in the world can you be wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked and not realize it? They didn't realize it, they couldn't see it. Maybe they wouldn't see it. Maybe what they thought was true about themselves, they really thought was true. Maybe they couldn't really tell the difference between reality and a false reality that they had kind of conjured up in their mind or this public persona or what other people had said about them so much so they began to believe it. But what they were saying wasn't anchored to the truest reality. And and Jesus said, man, I just want to tell you, you guys got it good and yeah, you're pretty safe. And man, if the world world goes south, you're probably going to be okay. But I'm telling you, there's some things about you you don't see because you got a blind spot. And that's what religion does. That's what religion does to all of us. It it offers us a system which cultivates blind spots. That's, That's how religion works, that's how religion thrives. And that's why religion is the way that religion is because it's manufactured in such a way to create a system that creates blind spots for everybody who engages in the religious exercise. That's that's how it works. Jesus dealt with this with the religious leaders of his day and he said this to them, he said, woe, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites or you play actors, you're just playing a role. It's not reality, you're just kind of playing a role. You're, You're just pretend. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, it's full of greed and self indulgence. He says, so you got this outside persona going on. You got this public image going on and it it looks all good, but I'm telling you, the reality is it's not so good. And then listen to what Jesus says, blind Pharisee. You can't see it, you're blind. If you're blind, you can't see it. You got a blind spot, Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will also be clean. And then he keeps on going because Jesus, he he just kept driving this home. He said, woe to you teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look, appear, it's the PR side, it's the brand, it's the image, it's what everybody thinks, it's what everybody says, it's what everybody sees. It looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of bones of the dead and everything is just kind of unclean. So, so this, this public persona, this public image of what people think about you and what people say about you that you kind of believe about you, it's not the way it is. He says, in the same way, on the outside, you appear, you appear. You appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're just full of kind of hypocrisy and wickedness. On on another day, but to the same audience, the same religious folks, he he said, you hypocrites. I mean, Jesus loved that word. I mean, he called people hypocrites all the time. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right. He was right when he prophesied about you, when he said, these people honor me with their lips. They got got the action, they got the motion, they got the the expression down, they got the lingo, the language. They know all the songs, they know the verses, they've got all the boxes, but their hearts, but their hearts are far from me. 
I, I don't know, maybe they were pretending on purpose. Maybe they knew the whole time they were pretending. I don't know, but maybe they weren't pretending on purpose. Maybe they were pretending and didn't know it. Isn't that the essence of kind of what Jesus is saying? You blind hypocrites, you don't even know you're a hypocrite. <laughs> you don't even know you're pretending. You, you, you don't even know that you're going through the motion. You're blind and not even aware that you're blind. So if you're blind and not even aware that you're blind, how in the world could you be aware of what your blindness can't see? Oh, oh, I didn't even write that in my notes this week. And I don't even quite know what I just said, but it sounded good to me and I think it's true. If you're not even aware that you're blind, how can you be aware of what your blindness can't see? So he's talking to a very large issue, a systemic problem within religious environments and within religious expression, because this is kind of what always floats to the top. So here's my question, how in the world does that happen? How does it happen that you can't know those things? How can you think you're alive but be dead? And how can you think, hey, I got it all together and we're rich and we really don't need anything, but we're really just poor, pitiful, naked and blind. How is it possible that we think, hey, it looks good to them, so it must be good. Everybody says it's good, it must be good. I mean, how, how do we become blind to reality? Because you would think we could never become blind to reality, but sometimes we can because we have blind spots. It was an absolute reality that there was a car there the whole time. I just couldn't see him. I was blind to reality. And sometimes we can get blind to the reality concerning ourselves and that's concerning. So how does this happen? Well, just a couple of thoughts. And one is obvious, self-deception. That, that's, it's easy to, to you know, put it quite simply. We lie to ourselves. Uh, a philosopher, Danish philosopher that I've loved to read after for years, his name's Søren Kierkegaard. And, he says, of all the deceivers in the world, he said, fear yourself the most. The world's full of deceivers. The world's full of liars. But of all the liars and all the deceivers, oh, you better fear the one in the mirror the most. You, you better fear that one. Because nothing is so difficult, <laughs> one person said, as not deceiving yourself. It's one of the great battles of life, not to deceive yourself. For me, not to deceive myself. It's like, it's like a constant struggle because we're deceiving ourselves without even knowing we are deceiving ourselves. And so it's just a very complicated, it's an onion with a lot of layers. Lying to ourselves. This is just the fact of the matter. Let's just get, let's just be honest. Lying to ourselves is really more deeply ingrained than us lying to each other. I don't lie to anybody. Well, when's the last time your wife said, hey, does this look good? There's no right answer to that other than yes. Or when your husband walks in and says, honey, have I put on too much weight for this polo? And she's thinking, God, I hope a button doesn't break. Somebody's gonna lose an eye. You know, it's just like, you know, yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think you can get another wear out of it. Sure, you know. Lying sometimes, you know, it, it's not excusable, but it's understandable. 
But lying to ourselves, that's, like, that's a whole other thing. We lie to ourselves to avoid, it's a maneuver that we do to avoid confronting what's real and what's true. Apparently the people in Sardis were doing, the people Laodicea was doing, the religious leaders in Jesus' day was doing it. I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. Jesus one day asked, he said, why do you constantly bark at, scream about, complain about the speck in everybody else's eye when you're walking around with a plank in yours? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? And, and the answer, the answer is obvious when we think about it. It's easier to condemn others than it is to confront ourselves. It's easier to condemn others than it is to confront ourselves. It's easy to go around and point at the speck in everybody else's eye when we're carrying a barn in our own eye. And when we lie to ourselves, we don't know it at the moment, but we're undermining the potential that we all have for change and for better and for good. And here, here's the thing, when we lie to ourselves, we become enslaved to those lies. And the more that we lie to ourselves, the less that we can recognize the truth. And so it's a vicious cycle. Um, Doltieski, he wrote in, in, in the brother's novel, he said, above all, he said, don't lie to yourself. Lie to, you know, kind of saying, I had a guy tell me one time, hey, lie to anybody before you lie to yourself. Lie to anybody before you lie to yourself. Now he wasn't saying go lie to everybody, but he was saying, he was making a point. Don't lie to yourself, above all. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him. And so loses all respect for himself and for others and having no respect, he ceases to love. And that's kind of important since Jesus said that love of our neighbor and love of each other, that's the most important thing. And he says that the more that we lie to ourselves and the more deceived that we get and we don't even know what's happening, it somehow restricts the flow of love because we're living in a false reality. And when you're living from a false reality, you can't love outside of that false reality. It's, it's, just, this, it's just this thing that we just, it happens, but we don't think about it. So there's this self-deception thing. And then there's, there's just denial. You know, that's a self-defense mechanism. You know, it's, it's, it's so uncomfortable. I, I don't wanna face it. I, I, don't wanna, I, I don't wanna admit it to myself. I don't wanna acknowledge it. You know, Mark Twain said, denial just ain't a river in Egypt. We've all got one running right through us. And, and you find this happening all throughout the scripture. You know, in Jeremiah's day, the prophet said, he looked at the people and it's just really amazing. And Eugene Peterson put it in these terms. He says, you know what? You're in the first aid kit looking for a Band-Aid when you've got a mortal wound. You're bleeding to death. And, and you're thumbing through the first aid kit looking for a Band-Aid because you're just in denial of how wounded you are, of how cut open you are. You're broken and you're shattered and you, you just won't even admit it. You just won't even acknowledge it. You know what's worse than being jacked up and screwed up? Not knowing that you're jacked up and screwed up. <laughs> That's when it gets really off the rails. One day Jesus was talking to a group of religious leaders and he said something that we've all heard before. You shall know the truth and talk to me. Then the truth shall set you what? You shall know the truth and the truth set you free. And the religious leaders looked back at Jesus and said, well, you know, that sounds all good and well, but I want you to know we're the descendants of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anybody. I beg, I beg, beg pardon, what? We've never been enslaved to anybody. Really? What about 400 years in Egypt? What, what about the Babylonians? What about the Persians? What about the Medes? What about the Greeks? What about, oh, maybe the Romans right now? We've never been 
slaves to anybody. Even though, even though they celebrated Passover every single year to remind themselves that once upon a time they were what? Wait for it, slaves. We've never been slaves to anybody. You know what they were doing? They were doing what a lot of people love to do, try to do, rewrite their stories. Rewrite a false narrative about everything in their life. Rewrite a false narrative about everything that's happened, how it happened, where it happened, when it happened. Just, just this new history where we don't have to admit we were, it doesn't even make sense, but that's just the craziness of it. And, and here, here's where the story between Jesus and the religious leaders is just where it not only drips irony, but it's like a waterfall of irony. He's telling them a story He's telling them a story about how truth will set them free, set them free from lies. And here they are telling a story about themselves to themselves that had enslaved them to the lie and the story that they were telling themselves. I mean, it's just, it's like this crazy thing. And Jesus said, you should know the truth because the truth will set you free. And Sardis, somewhere along the way, I don't know, they, they were just in denial. There was a little bit of self-deception. And Jesus says these words to them. He says, wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. So in other words, Jesus says, stop lying to yourself. Stop the drift because you've gotten so blind, you have a blind spot, you gotta wake up. Stop pretending, stop deceiving yourself. Stop just going through the motion. Just, you, just, you gotta wake up because if not, this is not gonna end well. You've fallen asleep. And when you fall asleep, the idea is that you've lost, self, you've lost self-awareness. Let me ask you a question. How many of y'all are light sleepers? Just show of hands, light sleepers, right? It's like you never lose awareness. You're just, it's like somebody walks across the room and you're like, hey, what are you doing? It's like, what? I am not that. That's not what he's talking about here. I am a deep, deep sleeper. I'm such a deep sleeper that, you know, even when Allison's on call, I can be asleep. She can get out of that bed, disarm the alarm system, which tells us with a voice all throughout the house that it's being disarmed. She can walk out the kitchen garage door and it will tell us that she's walking out the kitchen and then go through the garage, open the garage door, leave, come back hours later, all the same things repeated, get into the bed again, and I don't even know she's left. That's why, you know, years ago, I used to sleep with a 357 under her pillow because I figured when she left, it's the only shot I got of surviving if somebody comes in. I'm not gonna know they've broken in until they're like on top of me. And, and so I don't do that anymore, but you know, rest, just take a breather. Uh, but but I, I, I'm just such a, he says, wake up because there's some things going on about you that you're not even aware of. There's some things that are true about you and real about you that you can't even see. So take a long look and, and maybe consider asking this question. What is it about me that I can't see, but need to see? What is it about me that I can't see, but need to see? This is a question we ask because we want progress. And this is a question we ask if we wanna grow. And this is a question we ask if, if we want to make necessary changes in order to get to where we want to be. That's how we move forward is with questions like this. We, we ask questions like, what is it that I need to see that I can't see? What, what is it? What are those things? And that we get vulnerable enough. Vulnerability, that's a, that's a word not a lot of us guys can get behind. What does it mean to be vulnerable? 
I like how one person defined it, that it's just taking an emotional risk. That's what vulnerability is, it's an emotional risk. You take an emotional risk to ask God what David asked God in Psalm 139. He took the emotional risk, he got vulnerable enough to say, God, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you show me what I can't see? Would you search me? Would you know me? Because you already do, and will you show me what I can't see? That's vulnerability, that's taking an emotional risk because I may not particularly like it. I may not particularly want to see it. And he says, so you gotta wake up, all right? You gotta wake up because this is the way, this is, this is what you do to reverse the drift. And you go back, you go back to what you heard and believed at first and you hold to it firmly, repent and turn to me again. And this is where it ends, this is the end. This is the close. He says, go back to the good news. Go back to the gospel, what you believed at the very beginning. Go back to the gospel, which reminds you, you don't have to pretend to God. You, you don't even have to pretend for the sake of yourself because God knows what you do. And before you ever did anything, God decided to love you and send his son to die for you. So you don't have to pretend. God loves you just as you are. So you don't have to worry about that. Go back to the good news, which reminds you, you don't have to be perfect. Now, your mama may have felt like, you know, you needed to be perfect. Daddy maybe made you feel like you needed to be perfect, but God not once has ever said be perfect. Matter of fact, he has said emphatically that you are not perfect, that you are anything and I am anything but perfect, that we are so short of perfect, it's not even funny. And God reminds us in the good news that we don't have to be perfect, but the reason that he sent his son anyway was because we're not perfect. And we're also told that he who started a good work in us is gonna finish it one day. So he's okay with process. He's okay that it's gonna take some of us a while to get there. He's okay that sometimes you take a step off and you fall down and you get back. He's okay. Go back to the gospel and remember that when Christ died, he died for all of your sin and quit wallowing in all the guilt and shame. Just knock it off, just quit, because it's not good for you, it's not good for anybody. Go back and remind yourself that your sins are forgiven and forgotten, and God has said he's never gonna hold it against you or use it against you. Go back and be reminded of that. Remind yourself that God is for you, that he's cheering you on. That's how he is. That's, uh, Shepard decided to play football this year. Saturday, yesterday he was at practice and I was, in, I was in the vehicle and Grayson was back there with me and I was just watching him and I wanted him to get everything that they were showing him right. I just wanted him to like, mm, come on, come on, come on. You know, I'm just in there, I'm fired up. And, and then, you know, I, I, that's what a father does. A father just wants his children to get it right. And you know what? When they don't get it right, he's hopeful that the next time they will get it right. And that's how your father feels about you. And the gospel reminds us of that. That if it's true about us and our kids, how much more true is it about God and his kids? That God's sitting there, he's just looking and he's watching. That's why I love Paul. Paul didn't beat around the bush. Paul said, I'm the worst of all sinners. You're talking about a self-aware guy. We always treat it as though it's a metaphor. What if it's true? What if Paul was the worst of all sinners? You read Romans seven, he says, everything I say I'm gonna do, I don't. And everything I say I'm not gonna do again, I do. Man, I'm so wretched. And he never tells us what he's talking about, but he keeps on coming back to the fact that he's a trophy of grace and he's a man in process and, and, and God still loves him and God still loves, I, I mean, that's, just go back and be reminded of what you believed at first. Be reminded of that. 
He says, and repent. You know what repent is? We think of confrontation, confrontation, confrontation. It's an invitation. He just come on back. Just come on back. You, you drifted, you got blind. Let me show you. But I'm not gonna show you anything. Oh, here, this is good. This is it. I'm not gonna show you anything about you that means I don't love you. I've known it all along. I've seen it all along. I've known it from the very beginning. So you don't have to be afraid of what I'm gonna show you about you. Because I love you. I know you. And let that bring life. Find life in that. Find hope in that. Find peace and joy in that, that the tomb is empty, your sins are forgiven that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And there's nothing ever so dead that he can't bring it back to life. Father, let us receive what we need to receive. Ignore what we need to ignore. And Father, show us what we can't see that we need to see. And let's not be afraid of that or dread that because God, You know us already and you love us. And there's no fear in that. So those of us who have felt a little dead, a little lifeless, a little dry, God, may we remind ourselves of that, the goodness of the gospel, the good news, and may we find life in what's true, that you love us, that you have a plan for us, that the work you started, you're going to finish. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.